The reading was found in Isaiah, chapter 42, and it's verses 21 to 25. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention to time in, to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law, so he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of, of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gospel reading is from Luke chapter 7, and you'll find it on page 1036. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. 
Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, it's lovely to be with you here today. I'm a bit booming, am I? There we go. Power. Uh, good. Uh, it's lovely to be back here in Bath. Uh, lovely for Beeman and I to come and, and visit for the weekend. Uh, let me say thank you to many of you who've been praying for us over the last few years while we were in Singapore and now uh, starting out at Oak Hill Theological College in London. It's been lovely to partner with you. Thank you for your uh, emails, uh, your support, your giving, your prayers. We really do feel loved by this church family. Uh, let me pray before we get into that passage in Luke. Let's pray. Loving Father, thank you that you made us to know you. You long for us to be in close relationship with you. Thank you that you've spoken to us so that we can know what you're like. We can know your love for us. So I pray that you'd help us to listen carefully now, to respond rightly to what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. Uh, well, I'd like to start by um, asking you a question, uh, if I may. Uh, it's quite a, a personal question, so I'm going to give you some warning just to prepare. Uh, I'm going to ask you about your love life. Who is the love of your life? Who is the love of your life? Uh, as we enter Advent and kind of the long uh, build up to Christmas gets going, uh, maybe that's on our minds. For some of us, I guess we're really looking forward to Christmas with family, with loved ones. Uh, for us, it'll be our first Christmas together as a family for a few years, so we're looking forward to that. For others, it might be a more painful time. You're aware of people who won't be there to celebrate this year. It can be a difficult and lonely time. But I wonder as you reflect on that, who is the love of your life? Just hold them in your minds. I wonder where your mind goes, who's there? Is it Jesus? Is it Jesus who fills your mind and your heart? Now, as I say that, I'm sure there'll be some here who are thinking, actually, yes, Jesus is the love of my life. Uh, maybe you became a Christian quite recently. You can remember vividly hearing for the first time that Jesus died for you, how he gave you his spirits. You've got the hope of heaven. You still can't quite believe how good it is. You love him. Maybe you've been a Christian for a longer time, but you're still blown away by that. And more than that, now you've seen how Jesus has been faithful over the years. Your whole life, he's kept you, preserved you, sustained you, and you love him. For many, though, we might remember a time in the past when we felt like that, when we declared our love for him, offered our lives to him, everything, and yet that can feel quite distant as the weeks pass, as we get on with the everyday, ordinary Christian life. We can move from loving Jesus to respecting him to, well, just putting up with him. Maybe you used to love to talk to him in prayer whenever you could. Now, well, it's just when you need him, when you're in trouble. 
Maybe you used to give joyfully, generously of your time and money. Now it's a bit more token out of a sense of duty. Perhaps you used to love telling your friends and family, anyone about Jesus, sharing the gospel with them. Now it just doesn't seem so urgent. You don't want to look extreme. Our hearts can quite quickly move a long way from loving Jesus. I'm aware that there might be some here, and, and you're not Christians, you're just kind of looking in on the Christian faith, and talk of loving Jesus might just sound a bit, a bit weird. It kind of freaks you out. Maybe it's just a bit too emotional, a bit too touchy-feely. Maybe it's just bizarre. Why would anyone feel like that? Loving Jesus. Well, I'd urge you to keep listening, because our passage today from Luke shows us someone with deep love for Jesus, a passionate reckless love. And more than that, it shows us why that kind of love is the right response to him, reasonable, appropriate. It wants to move us from being lukewarm to having hearts burning with love, from just putting up with Jesus to embracing him, from keeping Jesus at the edge of our life to having our lives revolve around him. Who is the love of your life? Well, if you close your Bibles, do open them up again to Luke chapter 7. That's where we're going to be spending our time, listening to what the Holy Spirit has to say, has to, say to us there today. Uh, three simple things we're going to see as we work through that passage. A sinner's love, a Pharisee's scorn, and a Savior's grace. First of all then, a sinner's love. Uh, Luke sets the scene for us in in verse 36. Look down at that. Uh, When one of the Pharisees uh, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So you can imagine it was a a pretty big day for Simon the Pharisee, wasn't it? Uh, The invitation's gone out and Jesus has accepted. Naturally, I guess you want to make a good impression at the dinner party. You can imagine the rest of the day getting the house ready, cleaning the bathrooms, vacuuming the floor, getting the drinks and nibbles ready, uh, getting the food in the oven. And as the evening starts, everything gets off to a great start, doesn't it? Jesus and the other guests arrive, dinner's served, conversations are buzzing, there's kind of light jazz in the background, the atmosphere's great. What a relief. But then, well, a woman walks in the back of the room. Every head turns. You can hear the noise of conversation just stops, fades as everyone turns to look at her and stare. Everyone knows exactly who she is. Luke just says she's a woman who lived a sinful life. We can't be sure what that means, but we know she's got a reputation in the community. It may be she was a prostitute, a local call girl, walking the streets every night in the dodgy part of town. There are pictures of her all over the internet. Parents warn their sons to keep away from her. So as she walks towards Jesus, people start to mutter to themselves, what is she doing here? Has she no shame that her clients are missing her tonight? She takes no notice. All she's looking at is Jesus. She goes straight to him carrying that precious jar. We don't know what she knew about him, how she knew him. I guess she must have heard him teaching earlier in the town. Maybe what he'd said had spoken to her. 
It had given her hope. Now she wants to show her appreciation. I can imagine her trying to keep herself composed. Don't cry. Don't cry. But it's too much. Soon tears are falling and falling, so much so that Jesus is getting wet. His feet are covered with water. She hasn't got any tissues, so she uses all that she has, her own hair, to dry them before she tips the jar and pours it over Jesus' feet. You can imagine the shock that caused at a civilized, respectable dinner party. And we should be shocked reading it. It is an astonishing act of reckless love. Just think about her humility. She's acting like a slave. One of the things I miss about living in Singapore is being able to wear flip-flops every day of the year. It's hot all the time. It's brilliant. But that means at the end of the day, your feet are black. They're covered in dirt and dust. The streets in Jesus' time wouldn't have been quite as well cleaned as Singapore. They were filthy. Who knows what you'd step in? Only slaves dealt with the dirt of feet. But the woman doesn't care about that. All her attention is on Jesus. This is humble love. Or think about her sacrifice. We're not told how expensive the perfume was, but it wouldn't have been cheap. This wasn't kind of a token gesture for Jesus. This may have been the most precious thing she owned, poured out over Jesus' feet. This was costly love. Think about her courage. Just imagine how much courage it took for her to do that. It's nerve-wracking, isn't it, when you meet famous, important people. I remember I met uh, David Cameron, the Prime Minister, a few years ago, and it's quite nervous. It's it's quite nerve-wracking as you queue up to, to speak to him. So just think of her waiting to speak to Jesus in front of all these respectable people in the town. You can imagine her wondering, oh, should I go? What will people think of me? Took great courage to do this. This was courageous love. Humble, costly, courageous love. Isn't that attractive? Isn't that the kind of love you'd love to have? Love that takes you out of yourself, that makes you do crazy things that no one else understands who doesn't share your love. Love that says, I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it costs. I don't care what people think. All I care about is you. Reckless love. I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of love. Well, poor Simon hosting this meal I guess this wasn't quite the after-dinner entertainment he planned for the evening. Uh, And as readers, we should be wondering, how is the host going to react? It's his party, she's crashed it. What is he thinking? And Luke's a good storyteller. That's what he tells us next. Verse 40. A Pharisee's scorn. Just listen to the scorn, the, the disdain in Simon's voice. Verse 40. If this man were a prophet... He would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Can you hear how in one sentence, Simon condemns both the woman and Jesus? The woman, she's just dismissed completely, isn't she? He avoids saying anything too explicit about her, just talks about what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. That's all she is in his mind. That's her label, her category, sinner clearly condemning her. But he's condemning Jesus as well, isn't he? 
What's his suggestion? If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him. Saying Jesus can't possibly be a prophet. He can't be a, a man of God because prophets wouldn't be seen with, let alone touched by people like this woman, people like her. The woman's condemned. Jesus is rejected. The only person who comes across well in Simon's comment is, well, Simon, isn't it? Simon the Pharisee is just the kind of person a prophet would hang out with. Simon had no problem Jesus accepting his invitation. Nothing surprising about that. He's a respectable Pharisee. So with just a thought, just a comment to himself, Simon has put himself at a distance from both. He's cold, aloof. So can you feel the contrast between these two characters that Luke's painting? There's the host and the gatecrasher. The Pharisee, the prostitute. Simon, we know his name, and the unnamed woman. And above all, look at their hearts. One, self-righteous, cold, distant. The other, humble, enraptured in love. And the question we should be asking as we see these two characters is, what makes the difference? What makes the difference? Well, for that, we need to see, finally, a Savior's grace. A Savior's grace. There's a bit of an irony here that um, while Simon is wondering to himself whether Jesus is really a prophet, well, Jesus already knows what he's thinking, doesn't he? He can see his thoughts. He can see his heart. And so Jesus challenges him. He's very gentle, very tactful. Did you notice that? Jesus doesn't just go in and rebuke Simon. That's what he deserves. He wants him to work out for himself where he's gone wrong. So he tells a story. Look at verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. Uh, Denarius is about uh, a day's wage. So both of these are pretty serious debts, actually. The bigger one, perhaps 50,000 pounds, something like that. The smaller one, 5,000. Maybe you know what it's like to have that kind of debt. You've experienced that. Credit cards, car loan, expensive mortgage. There's anxiety, isn't there? Where's the money going to come from? Interest building up, bills to pay. It's a burden. So imagine their relief as the moneylender cancels both. They're free in an instant. And Jesus ends with the question, now which of them will love him more? Not, it's not a difficult question, is it? Uh, you don't really need A-level economics to, to answer this question. Uh, Simon gets it right. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus applies the story. Verse 44. Then Jesus turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? At first sight, that's a bit of a strange question. Of course Simon's seen the woman. She's crashed his party, interrupted the evening. She's brought shame on his house. She's still there kissing Jesus' feet. Of course he's seen her. How could he miss her? But Jesus wants him to look at her differently. Simon's looking down on her in, in judgment. But how do they really compare? Well, listen to Jesus' assessment, verse 44. I came into your house... You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, 
but she poured perfume on my feet. Simon's hardly done anything to welcome Jesus. The woman hasn't stopped showering him with love and affection. What is it that makes the difference? Jesus gives the conclusion, verse 47. Key verse for this passage. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. The way they treat Jesus reveals how much they think they've been forgiven. A loving heart is a forgiven heart. The woman knows she's a great sinner. Everyone knows she's a great sinner. She knows she had a debt she could never repay. And yet in Jesus, she's found forgiveness. And she loves him. Simon hasn't got a clue how much he needs to be forgiven. I guess Simon, as a Pharisee, thinks God's in the debt collection business. Uh, Sure, we've all made mistakes, but if we work hard enough, if we're good enough, if we keep our lives free from sin, we can wipe the slate clean, maybe even get some credit with God. Simon thinks he's off the hook, maybe even doing Jesus a favor by having him over to dinner. But Jesus says God's in the debt relief business. In the story, both people owed money, didn't they? It wasn't that one was in debt and the other wasn't. One owed more than the other, but neither could pay it back. Simon may only be a a 50-point sinner, but he's still a sinner. He needs his debt cancelled, his sin forgiven. And as long as he fails to see that, as long as he's blind to his own debt, his heart will stay cold, judgmental, It hasn't been touched by the Savior's grace, undeserved kindness. And that will be true for us as well. We won't love Jesus without facing up to our own sin. We won't love Jesus without facing up to our sin. Now, that that might sound counterintuitive. It seems odd that acknowledging our sin would produce love. They don't seem to go together, do they? Some would say we we shouldn't talk about sin at all. It's harmful to challenge people about sin. Seems old-fashioned, intolerant, perhaps. Talking about sin drives people away from Jesus. But, But look in our passage. It's the person who's most conscious of their sin, of their unpayable debt, who loves Jesus the most, who rushes towards him because he offers forgiveness. The power of the message of the gospel isn't just that God loves us, though he does, and that's wonderful. The stunning truth is that it's while we were still sinners, enemies of God, unworthy, unclean, helpless, it was then that God loved us. God sees our sin, he knows the worst of us, and it is horrible, and yet he loves us. Jesus cancels the debt. If you want to love Jesus, if you want reckless, joyful love, well, you need two things. Face up to your sin. It is real, horrendous. And accept God's forgiveness. Jesus has paid the debt. You've got to have both. The more people know they've been forgiven, the more they love God.
Well, as we look through the passage, I wonder which character you, you related to more. Which could you see yourself in most closely? Do you relate perhaps to the woman? Actually, you know your sin. You, you don't need me to remind you. You're reminded every day. Maybe there's a, a particular moment in your past, one thing that's burnt into your memory. You just wish you could undo, but you can't. It's done. It's there. And the guilt lingers. Maybe actually there's an, there's an ongoing pattern of sin. You keep failing again and again, and you hate it, but you're trapped. It makes you feel unworthy, helpless. Well, Jesus knows about it. You're not going to hide it or cover it up. The woman in the passage didn't. Did you notice three times she's called a sinner? By Luke, verse 37, by Simon, verse 39, and by Jesus, verse 47. Three times. Jesus doesn't deny her sin, but he does deal with it. Three times as well, we're told, that Jesus dealt with her sin. Verse 47, her many sins have been forgiven. Verse 48, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus is in the business of debt relief. You sometimes hear the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. But I think Luke here wants us to see that God loves to help those who can't help themselves. Actually, as you read through chapter 7, you see that this woman isn't a one-off example. Luke's made this point again and again and again. There was a, a centurion who was helpless. He knew he wasn't even worthy to have Jesus in his house. A widow who, whose son had died. Now she's alone, helpless, destitute. She didn't even know to ask Jesus for help. And yet he did, raising her son. Who was it that came to listen to John the Baptist as he pointed people to Jesus? But it was tax collectors, sinners, the outcasts, people who knew they were helpless. Luke's aim, his purpose in writing this gospel, is to give us confidence that Jesus has come to forgive sinners, no matter who we are or how helpless we feel. I was reading an article a little while ago about, about professional debt collectors, real debt collectors. Uh, banks have these huge spreadsheets uh, with details of all the people uh, who owe them money. Quite scary. And uh, sometimes people don't repay, and banks kind of give up on ever getting the money back. But they sell the spreadsheet on to other people who then have the right to go and collect the money instead. So it might be years after the loan was taken, but it gets passed on until someone tries to collect it. A guy called Brandon Wilson is an ex-convict in the States, and this is his job. He does this for a living. He's got a spreadsheet in front of him, and he'll just work through the names, calling them up one by one. <clears throat> so someone will be at home, and they'll just get a call out of the blue. Hello. My name's Brandon. I'm calling about the outstanding balance on a loan you took in 2009. And he'll keep calling until the debt is paid. Awful, awful calls to receive. But I think that's the way some people feel about Jesus. Worrying that one day, out of the blue, he's going to chase you up. You'll get that call from him. Hello. It's Jesus. I'm calling about what you did that night, 2009. You know what you did. And now you need to pay for it. Well, while we think of Jesus as a debt collector, we'll never love him. We'll fear him, we'll hide from him, 
or try to buy him off with token good works. But in the Bible, it's as if Jesus has already got in touch. He's already given us the call. He speaks to each one of us saying, hello, I know all about your debt, all that you owe. You will never be able to pay it back, but I've paid it for you. The debt is forgiven. Jesus has paid it in full already on the cross, his life for yours. The debt is canceled. That's what we're remembering later in bread and wine. Jesus given for us. That is the message the woman heard. That is why her heart overflowed with love. Jesus didn't come to collect our debt. He came to pay it himself. No matter how much you owe, Jesus' treasury is bigger. No matter how far you've fallen, Jesus' reach goes further. No matter how public, how frequent, how dirty the sin, Jesus' blood is enough to wipe it clean. Maybe you relate to the woman. It might be, though, actually, you know you're more like Simon, the Pharisee. You can see yourself in him. Actually, as you reflect, there isn't that warm love for Jesus. And it's not there, perhaps, because you don't really see the need for forgiveness. You're not really aware of any sin. I'm sure none of us would say we're perfect. Uh, but maybe it's just that sin isn't that big a deal in our minds. I think that's, that's true in my own heart. Actually, I've developed some pretty effective ways of making sin seem less serious. Uh, I thought this morning I'd share some of my strategies with you. I'm thinking of writing a book. Uh, I'm going to call it Self-Righteousness for Dummies. How to look good in your own eyes. Uh, here's an excerpt. Uh, strategy one, compare yourself with others. Uh, it doesn't really matter who you compare yourself with as long as they're worse than you. Uh, the media provide great resources for this. Just find any news story about sexual misconduct or financial impropriety, and instantly you'll look better in comparison. I may have a problem with lust, but at least I've not abused anyone. I may have a problem with greed, but at least I've not committed fraud. As long as you find people worse than you, you can look and feel great. Strategy two, uh, set achievable goals. It may sound inspiring to reach for the stars, but when it comes to holiness, it's much better to set more manageable targets. Uh, aiming for big ideals like love, humility, joy, gentleness, self-control is only going to lead to disappointments. Far better to have two or three simple, concrete actions to do every week. Uh, read the Bible, go to church, give some money. Minimize your targets to maximize your success. Strategy three. Identify the real problems. Uh, when things go wrong, we can be quick to blame ourselves, can't we? But usually, someone or something else is the real problem. Uh, when you're angry, just blame the person you're angry with for their irresponsible behavior. Uh, when you gossip, blame the person you're talking about. They should have known better. When you're unkind, blame the pressure you're under at work, your lack of sleep, the weather, anything else you find annoying. Three strategies. Self-righteousness for dummies. I know I'm an expert at all of them. I wonder if you can relate to any of those. When we do them, we look and feel great in our own eyes, but we're blind to our sin. It doesn't matter how we compare to other people. What matters is how we match up to God, his character. We don't get to set the goals for our lives. It's God's standards that matter, 
His standard is clear. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We don't get to shift the blame. It's not our circumstances or our past that are responsible at the end of the day. It's our own hearts. We are the problem. We're all sinners. Some of us may be 50-point sinners, others 500-point sinners. But all of us have a debt we can never repay. If your love for Jesus has gone cold, it may be that you've moved on that path from love to respect to just putting up with Jesus. If you want that humble, reckless love for Jesus, it may be that you need to face up once again to your own sin. Acknowledge that, yeah, I've been like Simon, that Pharisee, excusing my sin, rather than looking to the one who can deal with it, who can forgive it. One of my heroes from the past is John Newton, uh, most famous perhaps for writing Amazing Grace, uh, the hymn. Uh, You may know he lived in the 18th century. He came from a a sailing background, as the son of a, a ship captain and grew up to be a captain himself. He used to sail from England to West Africa, Uh, where he'd pick up cargo uh, to sail to America. And his cargo was was people. It was slaves. Thousands of them over the years. He he kept them in conditions so horrific, many died before they reached the end of the voyage. One year while he was sailing across the Atlantic, uh, in the midst of a storm, Newton cried out to God for help. And after being saved, he became a Christian, gave up the slave trade, became a pastor, He spent his life pointing people to the grace and forgiveness that he had found in Jesus. One of the striking things as you read his letters and sermons and hymns is just the warmth of his love for Jesus that stayed strong over a whole lifetime of ministry, encouragement to many, many people. Shortly before he died, he was in poor health, and he moved from London to to here in Bath to take the waters, enjoy fresh air. And a friend came to visit him and heard what are probably his last recorded words. He said this, My memory's nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. Two things he remembered. I think those two things that he held on to over the years are what sustained that warm love for Jesus. Jesus was the love of his life. We remember those same two things. I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great saviour. We will have that same reckless, joyful love for our saviour, Jesus. Let me pray. Our Father, we praise you for Jesus. We long to, to love him as we should. We long to love him humbly, sacrificially, courageously with all our lives. We're conscious, though, that often we're not thankful for all he's given for us, pouring out his his blood for us on the cross. Pray that today you give us a fresh sense of our own sin, our own debt that we could never pay, but also the great wonder of forgiveness that's found in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.